Erasing the Stigma, Conversations About Mental Health in the Legal Community. Welcome to Erasing the Stigma, Conversations About Mental Health in the Legal Community, brought to you by me, Mark Yacono Untethered. As always, the goal of this podcast is to discuss important topics related to the wellness of the legal profession. Our goal is to help normalize the occurrence of mental illness, to bring people out of the shadows of shame to get help, and to create a culture that encourages healthy workplaces and enables people in the profession to seek help without judgment or stigma. We have a very special guest today, Dr. Larry Richard. Dr. Richard has studied the way that lawyers' brains work for more than 20 years. He is the world's foremost expert on the psychology of the way the lawyer's mind works. He consults with lawyers and firms to create more resilient legal professionals, to build cultures that promote wellness, optimum performance, and strategic approaches to talent management and change management. Dr. Richard is unique not only because of his area of expertise and the depth of his research, but also because prior to his career in psychology, he was a well-regarded trial lawyer. So he brings his zeal for the psychology of the profession tempered by real-world experience in the trenches. Dr. Richard, I always like to tell the guests to introduce themselves to the listeners because they do a better job of it than I do. So can you tell the audience about your background and we'll get into your journey? Sure. Happy to, Mark, and thanks for inviting me today. Um, so the story starts uh, with my family. I come from a family of lawyers. My father was a, a very fine litigator and uh, taught me the ropes when I was very young, uh, took me to visit the Supreme Court when I was just a kid. I remember crawling under the conference table to his embarrassment and chagrin. My grandfather was a lawyer. I had aunts, uncles, cousins. There were lots of lawyers in the family. And honestly, I never considered any other career. That's just what we did. So I did pre-law in college, political science. Back then was political science and economics, which I hated routinely. And then got into a very fine law school, University of Pennsylvania, and really did not enjoy that experience for the most part. But I kept telling myself, it gets better when you're in practice. So I went into practice and practiced as a litigator and really did not like it. I kept switching jobs about every 18 months. And after 10 years of this, it finally dawned on me, the only thing common across all of those jobs was me. And I said, I have to look in the mirror and say, did I make a mistake? And I said, yes, I think I did. I think I picked a career because I'm supposed to do it, not because I want to do it. And I turned inward and did some self-evaluation, some soul-searching, and the through theme that came through everything I did forever and ever, as long as far back as I could think, is that my passion was psychology. And so I thought, I, I want to marry my experience in the legal profession, both. So I went to graduate school and I studied large systems, how organizations work. I graduated from a program in organizational psychology, which is basically the study of how you bring out the best in business organizations. And I also had a minor in individual development, how you bring out the best in people. And that led me to a fascination with personality, which I have never let go of. I've been 
there's a, th a theme through all of my work as a psychologist that personality is a helpful theme. <laughs> and it started with my own insight back in the beginning of my career. I learned about my own personality through a test that many of your listeners are familiar with, the Myers-Briggs. I even decided I was going to use the Myers-Briggs for my doctoral research. So I studied 3,000 lawyers across the entire U.S., and measured their Myers-Briggs preferences and compared that personality profile to the level of job dissatisfaction. And it turns out, while it's not a strong relationship, there is a link between your personality and your satisfaction in the practice of law. In hindsight, I was using the wrong tool. It turns out the Myers-Briggs is a fun tool, but it doesn't have the scientific chops that some of the other heavier duty tests have. And I later turned to a test called the Caliper Profile, which I'm sure we'll talk a little more about today. Caliper is a much more industrial strength tool. It has very high statistical validity and reliability. And that means it's much better at showing relationships and making predictions and finding out more about the story than the kind of pop psychology tool that I first used. So that brings us up to present day. I've spent the last, as you said, 20 plus years, it's close to 30 years working with law firms and corporate legal departments on a range of issues that all have to do with one common theme, which is bringing out the best in people using my expertise and personality and all the data that I've accumulated. I've measured thousands of lawyers over the years. And by drawing on that database, I can apply that in helping organizations of lawyers do their best, operate at their very best. How are you able to build this critical mass of lawyers to administer the caliper test to, because over the years, you've developed an extraordinarily large sample size. When I first started to do my doctoral research, my advisor in graduate school said, look, the goal is to just get out of here and get your PhD. And I said, no, I don't want to just do a study for the sake of doing a study. I want to do something that makes a difference. I want to do something that I can learn from and the legal profession can learn from. He said, why don't you just pick a law firm in Philadelphia, where I live, and study 30, 40 lawyers and write a paper? I said, no, I'm going to study a statistically random sample of the entire U.S. legal population. And my advisor literally said to my face, you're nuts. He says, why would you do that? It's crazy. And I said, I, I just feel called to do that. I have to do that. So I literally called up the president of the ABA at the time, a guy named Sandy D'Alemberte in Florida. And he picked up his own phone, to my great surprise. And I told him, I'm a lawyer, but I'm in graduate school earning my doctorate. And I want to study lawyers. And I told him why. And I said, I would love the support of the ABA. And he said, that's a great idea. Of course, we'll give you our support. I nearly fell off my chair. He, he provided me with what they call randomized lists so that it's statistically valid selection process to get a cross-section of lawyers in the U.S. He gave me the uh, endorsement of the ABA and gave me permission to actually put that in writing in the letter that I sent to my candidates for uh, who I was surveying. And after I did my doctoral research, Sandy asked me if I would publish the findings in the American Bar Association Journal and the next thing I know, it was the cover story of the July 93 
ABA Journal. He then invited me to speak at the annual meeting in Hawaii the next year to over 500 lawyers, whom we gave them the option of testing, taking the Myers-Briggs themselves, and most of them took it. So we had, from the very first time I presented any of this data publicly, we started with 500 lawyers taking the Myers-Briggs. That's really that, remarkable. And over time, that built and built. I got publicity from that, and led, that led to large law firms and corporate legal departments calling me over the next five years. They wanted to test not one or two. They wanted to test every lawyer in their firm, every lawyer in their legal department. So I was testing two, three, four, five hundred people at a time. Uh, and then some research came out in the 90s suggesting that the scientific basis of the MBTI was not very strong. And I switched to the caliper, which, as I said, is a much more highly scientific tool. And I started gathering data on it. I did a, a pilot study of a large number of managing partners across the country. And when we published that study, same thing happened. We got tons and tons of interest from law firms around the country. So we started accumulating caliper test data. And fast forward, it's been probably 25, 26 years of caliper data, maybe more, plus the Myers-Briggs data. In all, I've got over 25,000 sets of test data. At this point, there's nothing that surprises me because the data are so consistent year over year that the story is very simple to tell. In 1993, you published the Lawyer Personality, which was on the cover of the ABA Journal. That's right. And since that time, you've continued to test hundreds of lawyers every year using the caliper testing, and it's validating the results year in and year out. So the outcome of this research is a, a framework called the Seven Outliers of Personality Traits of Lawyers. Mm -hmm. Can you give us an overview, and then we'll go through those traits? Sure. So when I started using the caliper, they had 18 distinct traits. A couple of years ago, the company got sold and then and they expanded it, added three more traits. So we now have 21 traits. Each trait is measured on a scale of zero to 100, where the average, when you measure a large group, the average of that zero to 100 scale ends up right in the middle, around 50%. So each of the 21 traits would have an average of 50% if you looked at the entire caliper database. Their database is around 8 million people. Wow. Now, if we measure a subset of that, which is usually what we're doing when we measure an occupation, for example, all teachers, all bartenders, all lawyers, all accountants, if you took a subset, you wouldn't see exactly 50%. That would be quite unusual. You'd see close to 50 as the average for each of the 21 traits, but it wouldn't fall far from that. In fact, there's a set of goalposts, set of boundaries when you have a statistical distribution called the standard deviation. It basically measures the middle of the bell curve where about two thirds of the, the people fall. And the standard deviation for caliper is 10 points either side of the middle. So you have 40 to 60% is where literally all 21 traits should average whenever you test an occupation. Individuals will, will vary all over the map. They could get as low as a one or as high as a 99, but the average when highs and lows cancel out is gonna be between 40 and 60. 
it would not be surprising to pick any occupation on the planet, test a representative sample of them, and then see that pattern. See lots of variation for individuals, but when you average them together, 21 traits in a row falling between 40 and 60. However, there's one occupation mark that just defies that prediction. And it's us, it's the legal profession. We have not only one of the 21 traits, not just two of them, but seven of the 21 where our average score is below 40 or above 60. This is just it, stunning. It's unprecedented. No other profession, oh, I'm sorry, is there no other profession with that type of outlier occurrence? I have not found any other profession that comes even close to that. Out there. Not everyone has been tested, but of those who have been tested, which is quite a lot, I couldn't find anything that comes close to the departure from the norm that we represent. Now, that's not surprising when you realize that if you talk to lawyers, they always say we're different from other people. Now, a lot of occupations say that, but lawyers really are different in a number of ways. Number one, we're one of the few occupations, maybe prize fighter would be another and maybe a investigative journalist, where the job involves disputing something, where there is a paid adversary on the other side. Let's take, if you're a prize fighter, you're going to go into the ring and somebody's going to be throwing punches when you throw punches at them. When you're a lawyer, and usually it sounds like we're talking about litigation, but this is true even of transactional lawyers, in almost every case, your client is adverse either in an actual way or a theoretical way to one or more other parties. And those other parties are represented by lawyers who are doing their best to represent the interests of the other party, not your client. It takes a special person to get up every day and know that you've got a paid adversary who's trying to you know, upset your apple cart. That's thing one. Thing two is there are certain qualities that are essential to the high quality practice of law. And it's those qualities that seem to be self-selected when people enter the profession and as they mature in the profession. So for example, the number one outlier trait, the one that is the strongest departure from the average is skepticism. The average skepticism score for the public, of course, is 50%. The average skepticism score for lawyers is not just barely over the cutoff point of 60. It's not 70%. It's not even 80%. The average skepticism score for lawyers, the average, is 90%. How does that, man how does that manifest in terms of behavior or impact to have that high level of skepticism be pervasive in, a, in an industry? So one of the things that lawyers are charged with doing is protecting their clients in a legal way. And that can be either retroactive, somebody comes to me with a problem that has happened and they now want me to get them out of it or to mitigate any further damage, or they're buying a company or they're doing some sort of a transaction. They want advice. And one of my tools in my toolkit to make sure that I give them advice to keep them safe is I have to question everything so that I figure out the points that are dangerous or risky to them before those things actually come to pass and hurt my client. 
So skepticism is a really helpful, essential tool for scrutinizing assertions that people make, documents that people submit, events that happen. We want to look at what's wrong or what could go wrong. We want to look at the credibility of somebody. Do you have a hidden agenda? What's your motive in asking me to do something or asking my client to do something? Those are normal things that skeptical lawyers do to protect their clients. So it's a great thing in the practice of law. And that's why when we look at first-year law students, they already have an elevated skepticism score compared to the public. So more skeptics apply to law school than is typical across the general population. Furthermore, people with low skepticism drop out of law school along the three-year educational path. That concentrates skepticism as you get toward third year. And then the more you're exposed to skepticism, the more skeptical you get. So when they get out in practice and they're an associate in a firm, and every day they're exposed to guidance from partners about how to think skeptically, that skepticism goes up and up. So by the time we measure them, which is mostly partners, they've had a lot of time under their belt to raise that skepticism. With that skepticism trait being so well-honed and elevated, but how does that translate when you're doing like the critical work of being a member of a family or a colleague or a mentor? Is it something that you can toggle on and off? Or if you're a skeptic to that magnitude, does it pervade everything? Some people can, but the vast majority of people do not have that skill or don't even realize that it's something they should be doing. Lawyers have one and a half times the level of divorce compared to the general population. The study done in 2019 that made the cover of Harvard Business Review showing that out of 160 occupations, we're the loneliest occupation. Loneliness is a gateway to depression. And so that's a problem. There have been four studies since 2016 that uh, showing the toll that this takes on lawyers. Lawyers have increased levels of alcohol and drug abuse. They have increased risk of suicide. They have increased depression. We suffer more than the general population because the downside of this trait, it's a two-edged sword. It's great for practicing law, but if we don't know how to regulate it, if we don't know how to manage it, if we don't know how to soften the edges or to confine skepticism to our job and not bring it home with us, that can be very deleterious. Something statistics, especially when the Surgeon General has commented that generally we're suffering from an epidemic of loneliness. It's a steady state, not specific to a profession. And you're saying that the practice of law is the loneliest professions. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And you're right. Vivek Murthy's book and his ongoing campaign to bring the problem of loneliness to people's attention is really important. There's been study of loneliness going back to the, the 1970s. John Cacioppo at University of Chicago and others and his, his successors have done excellent research on why people get lonely and what the solution to loneliness is. It's really a mindset. It's not has nothing to do with whether you're with people or without. There are people that are at parties and feel lonely. There are people who are alone and don't feel lonely. It's about your mindset. And skepticism is a mindset. Personality 
It's about your mindset. And so the mindset of skeptical thinking lowers the friction to becoming lonely. Doesn't mean you anyone with skepticism will become lonely, but it makes it easier. It's not just skepticism, Mark. There are six other traits. Yeah, I think one of the ones that follows is very low sociability. And I'm interested in the interplay between that and skepticism. Sociability is the psychological comfort in being vulnerable emotionally. High sociability people are willing to share risky emotional parts of themselves. If you are having lunch with a strange a stranger or people you don't know that well, and you volunteer, I went through a messy divorce or I have a health problem or something. Those are things that people normally wouldn't talk about. The high sociability person is willing to take the risk of sharing information that could be maybe harmful or embarrassing in someone else's hands. Because when they do that, the vulnerability is actually a way of bidding for trust. When I'm vulnerable with you, I'm basically implicitly saying, here, I'm giving you something sacred, and I hope you'll give me something sacred in return. And that deepens the connection and builds trust. And that's scary, but it's really important because human beings are wired to be social, to be connected. And vulnerability is one of the principal ways that we build that connectedness. Low sociability people, on the other hand, tend to be a little more cerebral. When we talk to other people, we talk about the weather and about statistics, the stock market, that sort of thing. As opposed to speaking from the heart, we're more guarded about our private life. It can be said of somebody who's low on sociability, even if they're friendly. We had a great time. We went out for a beer. We had a great evening. But at the end of the evening, I know nothing more about this person's private life. So sociability is a measure of comfort in being disclosing. And lawyers are not only low on it. Remember, the public's at 50%. The average sociability for lawyers is 12.5%. That's awfully hard to fathom. It is hard. Think to about fathom. it that way. And we've had over the years a couple of high profile lawyers who have unfortunately been successful in taking their own life. One of the comments that's come back in several of those after event write ups and coverage is I never knew anything was wrong. They seemed normal. It, it sounds like this low sociability is, is is part of what helps them guard against really saying what's going on. That's right. Suicide is basically the a, a, a permanent solution to a temporary problem. It's the end result, usually, of depression. And when people are depressed, one of the hallmarks of depression is hopelessness. I don't feel like there's anything that can be done to pull me out of this bad feeling. So when people are hopeless, they're not really going to socialize. When people are depressed, they tend to get more passive and more detached from other people. We tend to circle the wagons and we reject offers of help because we're hopeless and we think, what's the point? It's just going to be a wasted, wasted effort. And that hopelessness can be toxic. It prevents the very connection which can pull people out of that depression. So one of the remedies when someone is depressed is to surround them with love, to surround them with family, with connection. There's a wonderful book by Johan Hari called Lost Connections, where he talks about his idea that depression seems to be the outcome 
of a variety of types of lost connections. And he gives his examples, loss of a connection with yourself, loss of a connection with friends, loss of a connection with your values, loss of a connection with your work, and so forth and so on. And so this loss of connection is one of the things that makes us feel hopeless and start turning inward. But it, like I said, it doesn't have to be that way. It would seem that if you're subject to low sociability and you look at depression as a consequence of a million acts of loss of connectedness, that, that the two almost compound each other. Loss of connection compounded by an inability to be vulnerable and open. It would seem like that's a really potent opponent you know, I, to fight. I, I, I want to edit one word there and not sure. inability, but because personality is not measuring ability. It's measuring your comfort zone. Basically, a low score on sociability says my comfort is in being guarded and not revealing much. My discomfort is in disclosing and in being with people. So low sociability people are guarded, but it doesn't mean that they can't be forthcoming. It's just that it's more uncomfortable. And honestly, I think one of the secrets to life is to be, to progressively learn how to get more and more comfortable with your own discomfort. When we're able to tolerate discomfort better and better over time, there's some really important things we can do that require discomfort. Another one of the outlier characteristics is high abstract reasoning. And can you take us through, I think that might be a good thing. That is a good um, thing. All of these traits, every trait has both pluses and minuses. So abstract reasoning is the psychological trait that has to do with love of problem solving and analyzing. And this is the number one predictor of why people go into law. There have been a series of studies starting in the early 1980s, the American Bar Association and 12 state bars did studies originally about lawyer dissatisfaction. Why are lawyers so unhappy? And the number one thing they found when they found out why did lawyers go into law in the first place is it was to solve problems and to use their intellect, to have interesting opportunities to think logically, to think through problems, to problem solve, to to analyze. And abstract reasoning is a measure of that love of problem solving and analysis, which is a great thing. And it's predictive of who goes into law. Of course, like all traits, it has a downside. And the downside, the stronger your trait, the more you get the benefit, but the more you get the downside, everything gets enlarged and expanded. So the downside of high abstract reasoning is we tend to suffer two problems. One is analysis paralysis. Should I take this parking space? Well, on the one hand, it's a really good parking space, and uh, I'll get to my uh, appointment sooner. But on the other hand, um, it looks small, and I might uh, waste a lot of time trying to get into it. Come on. You don't need that level of analysis. Just either park there or go somewhere else. But we tend to overdo it. The second one is that we tend to fall in love with arguing for arguing's sake. We like to argue, and when it's another lawyer, it's sport. But when it's your spouse, it can lead to some problems because not everybody's bought into the game of arguing like we have. One of the other traits, and this one I, I identify with very much because I've been told that my penchant for autonomy over a 36-year career is 
annoying to many is the concept of very high autonomy. Sure. So most of the professions have higher than average autonomy. Doctors, investment bankers, consultants, engineers, we all have high levels of autonomy. But lawyers have higher levels of autonomy. We leave the other professions in the dust. And we just don't like being told what to do. We like the efficacy of running our own practice. And law is the perfect occupation for somebody with high autonomy, at least private practices, because you're basically your own profit center. You run your practice. Nobody tells you, nobody's breathing down your neck saying, do this, do that. Most lawyers are given wide latitude to get their own business, to handle their own matters, to run the case the way they see fit. Of course, when you're in training as an associate, that's not the case. But once you're a partner, partners have a lot of autonomy. And so even if you're in a firm, it suits lawyers very well. Now, actually, 20 years ago, when firms started expanding and growing into much bigger firms, the Amlaw 50, I wondered, how's that going to play out with these really high autonomy lawyers? And suddenly they're in firms that have 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, 5,000. Now we have Dentons at 10,000. How is it going to work when you're in a firm that big? And it turns out the answer is fine. If you can carve out autonomy in your little sphere, it doesn't matter that the firm on paper is very big. It's what happens in your neighborhood that matters. But we do like autonomy. Interesting. So we tend to want to be the governor of our own ecosystem. Nicely put. So. And when you put skepticism together with abstract reasoning, together with autonomy, you get the perfect storm of, oh, yeah, you want me to what? It actually makes you wonder how firms get anything done. We know they do, but they do. It, it, it is a compelling soup of, of characteristics. Oh, wait, you, we're not done yet. I know, because we're coming on two very important ones, aren't we? Yes, we are. Very low empathy. Lawyers, this is the most recent change. Empathy was always low, but not quite over the tipping point below 40%. It was always at 41%, which technically speaking is not an outlier. Anything between 40 and 60 is normal. But then about five to 10 years ago, that started slipping and dropping. And now it's at 38% and dropping further. And it's not just lawyers. There has been a number of studies over the last 10 years showing that empathy has dropped like a stone, mainly among uh, people under age 40, millennials, if you will. And the, the component perspective taking, seeing the world through the shoes of others, that's really what's dropping. People are thinking in a very selfish way. What do I want? What am I, what are my needs? Without taking into account the effect I have on others or the needs of others or the wishes of others, we're just thinking me. And that kind of self-focused world, that non-empathic, non-perspective taking way of moving through life tends to produce road rage and air rage in airplanes. It tends to produce people who are polarized politically. It tends to produce lack of agreement about things that we used to have agreement about. Empathy is a very important lubricant for social connection. And when we don't use our perspective taking, we have the ability, but we're not really 
activating it. We're not really using it. And that's a shame because the people who succeed in life, by and large, are the ones who can build and sustain relationships by using perspective taking and a number of the other related skills. So it's a very important trait, very important for practicing law, very important for the things where lawyers have problems, very important for um, avoiding divorce, building a sustained happy marriage, very important for health and well-being, which we're suffering from poor levels of, very important for loneliness. More empathy would produce less missing each other when we talk and so forth. Social media gives the illusion that we're in a relationship, but we're not really. Social media doesn't really carry emotional information or visual information. It's just words. And it's very hard to take the perspective of another when you don't see them, when you don't feel their emotions, when you're not detecting the full communication envelope. And perspective taking helps us to prioritize face-to-face -face communication, to prioritize sharing emotional states with each other. So it's really important, and it's unfortunate that it's going in the other direction for lawyers and for others in society. And it also would seem that is is the capacity for, or not the capacity, but the prevalence of empathy gets lower. That would impact not only your family, but your actual ability to craft solutions for your client if there's an inability to understand their perspective. Finally, very low resilience, which I think will surprise a lot of people that lawyers are we, very low. I, I think we left out one, which is high urgency. Oh, um, we did. You know what? Yeah. We did. Sorry and about I, that. That's okay, because I was impatient for you to put that on the table. And, you uh, probably were, and my aging eyes weren't cooperating. <laughs> yeah, we're a bit impatient, and mainly because the law is a profession where many of our clients come to us to solve some of the most vexing, important problems that they have. And so they want them solved yesterday, and it stands to reason that the people who go into law are comfortable, and so urgency means simply we're impatient. We're, we're like, well, let's get this done. And again, I would think that you can't live in a perpetual state of high urgency without it having some consequences. No, of course, because if you're urgent too much of the time, or if you're too strong in your urgency, you tend to do things that are not socially uh, pleasing, like you finish other people's sentences, like I just did, or you cut corners, or you tend to not listen. And those are formulas for undermining relationships. So if you want a strong relationship, you have to manage your urgency and use it mainly to move your matters along, but not to disrupt the connections that we have. Yeah. Sometimes that urgency actually impacts our ability to take the time and have the patience to think through complicated things. So we make judgments prematurely. That's right. So Absolutely. for the benefit of our listeners, high urgency was number one that I missed. It was number one on the list of seven. So uh, that tells you how my eyesight is. <laughs> um, so now we'll go down to number seven, which is by no means the seventh in importance 
but that is very low resilience. And low resilience is something um, near and dear to my heart for a couple of reasons. One is I started out fairly low in this myself, and I had a 19% resilience when I first took the caliper. I've raised it way beyond that over the years, and that illustrates that resilience is one of those traits that can be improved. There are ways to improve it. Uh, what is resilience? Let me talk about it first of all. It should not be confused with the way we use that word resilience or resiliency in general conversation. General conversation, resilience has several different meanings. One meaning of it is just the fact that somebody recovered from a tragedy or a trauma, we call them resilient. So if you're in a car crash or you have COVID or you have a, an extreme weather event that damages your home or your family, recovering, we say that person's resilient. Number two, sometimes we talk about the process of resilience, the process of recovery from those things. It doesn't always have to be trauma, although some experts in the field only use the word resilience to talk about trauma. So there's some of these very extreme definitions of the word. I use it in a completely different way because I'm basically talking about a personality trait. Now, for years, I've, as I've mentioned earlier, I've given the caliper to people. And one of the traits that measures is a trait called resilience, which measures something much narrower, which is how we respond to criticism or rejection. Now, unlike a fire or a car crash, which is a once in a lifetime thing and a very traumatic, momentous, stunning, all eyes forward event, we get criticized a hundred times a day. Resilience measures our disposition, how we cope when we are criticized or rejected or suffer some other interpersonal setback of that sort. Now, whether that's related to these, what I call big R resilience triggers or not, let's think of the personality trait as a little R response and the responding to the hurricane as a big R response. There's no research showing how personality, the trait, is um, related to our response to these big momentous events. Uh, I think it clearly is in related in some way, but we don't really know the, the boundaries of that. Nevertheless, I've spent a lot of time working with lawyers who are low in resilience, helping them to build up through coaching and training, build up their resilience, because the problem with low resilience, let me paint the, the difference between a high and a low resilience person in terms of personality traits. A person with high resilience as a trait when they're criticized, it often doesn't disrupt them or upset them at all. It rolls off their back. I had a lawyer with a 95% resilience score once, an IP litigator, and I said to him, what's it like when you're criticized? And he shrugged his shoulders and he said, I don't know, I guess it means somebody else has a problem. And when he said that, I was like, wow, who would think of that? Because as a low resilience person, I always assume if there's a criticism, I'm looking inward. I'm going, what's wrong with me? What did I do wrong? But he hears it completely differently. He hears it as, you're trying to criticize me, but you don't know what you're talking about. So high resilience people don't really let it in. Low resilience people do. What happens next? Even high resilience people on occasion it gets under their skin. But the high resilience person recovers quickly. They snap out of it. They get over it. 
Low resilience people, by contrast, can ruminate, can sulk, can carry the hurt as a wound for ages. And it can really be even characterological. You can see it just the, the way they carry themselves. They're always anticipating getting criticized. So resilience, when it's low, looks like somebody who's uh, always feeling threatened or feels insecure or feels defensive. Uh, in law firms, it shows up in so many different ways. It shows up in hypersensitivity. They may feel offended that someone didn't talk to them in the right way or looked at them funny or didn't give them the right compensation or didn't invite them to a meeting. There's a lot of slights that are felt by low resilience people that would never even cross the mind of a high resilience person. So what's notable about this trait, Mark, is that all the other traits we talked about, when I talk about the higher than average or lower than average trait, the trait is still a bell curve. So when somebody is urgent, the average lawyer is 71% instead of 50%. Remember, 40 to 60 is regular and above 60 is an outlier. So 71% is an outlier trait. The whole bell curve moves basically to the right. Lawyers are more urgent than the general public. There are fewer people with really low urgency. There are more people with high urgency, but it's an even distribution around the bell curve. Resilience is different. The whole bell curve is distorted toward the lower end. And that means nine out of 10 lawyers are in the bottom 50%. That's stunning. That's a very unusual statistic. Nine out of 10 lawyers are thin-skinned. I always joke with law firms, if you feel bad when you hear that statistic, it illustrates low resilience. So low resilience is pervasive in the legal profession. Why is it so low? And this is the most consistent trait for 30 straight years or whatever the uh, total number of years is that I've been testing for this. This has been the most consistent trait year in and year out, 30% average resilience instead of 50 and 90% below the midpoint. Why is that so consistent? Because skepticism lowers resilience. Negative thinking, pessimistic mindset, glass half empty thinking, all comes along with skepticism. And we reinforce our skeptical thinking every day. It's not just a trait. It's a trait layered on top of a behavior that we reinforce every single day that we practice. So you get this heavy dose of ongoing skeptical thinking and ongoing negativity that atrophies our capacity to think positively, atrophies our ability to notice the good, atrophies our ability to think optimistically. And those things research has shown are related to our overall health, being, positivity, happiness, lifespan, resilience. So our resilience is constantly pushed down and pervasively depressed by our skepticism and also by our reticence about uh, building intimate connections with people. Social connection is another antidote, another insulator to low resilience, but we don't have that because we're so low in sociability. So those two things our discomfort about relationships, seeing them as touchy-feely instead of as vital, and our skepticism, those two qualities keep our resilience in the basement. I have this image in my head 
of someone with low resilience hearing a gong. And because of all those things you just talked about, that overwhelming sound of the gong just keeps getting louder and louder. Like it just keeps amplifying. Yeah, that's right. It's constantly getting reinforced to the point that I think I might have mentioned this in our initial conversation. The American Bar Association came to me not so long ago and said, you've been studying low lawyer resilience for all these years. Could you write a book about why lawyers are so low in resilience and what the science says about how to raise it? And so I spent the last year and a half writing that book. I finished it in September. I've been just this week putting the final touches on the edits to the book, and they hope to have it out in late spring. It's going to be called Thin Skin, Why Lawyers Are So Low in Resilience and the New Science That Can Help, a, a, guy, a handbook for raising lawyer being. Now, you said that when you first did the testing, you found yourself low on the resilience scale, if I heard you yes, correctly. Is that right? I did, yeah. Will you share your story of how you've worked on that on yourself over the years? Sure. When I took the Caliper, the psychologist who tested me was named Joanne. She worked for Caliper. And I went to their offices and had her give me the feedback about my test results. And she's doling out the test results one trait at a time. And she tells me what my assertiveness score is. And I said, oh, that's really accurate. I agree with that. And tells me my aggressiveness score and tells me my abstract reasoning. And she tells me my empathy score. And so far, I thought, this is a brilliant test. It's really nailed me. Then she says, now this next trait is called resilience. You've got a 19% on resilience. And I'm like, whoa, wait one minute. You're 19. That can't possibly be right. There must be something wrong. What kind of stupid test tells you that I got a 19? There must be something wrong with the test. Wait, she says, didn't you just tell me this was a great test? It was for the first four traits, but what's this? What are you talking about? And I just went off on a tear and started doing my lawyer thing about what's wrong with the test and what's wrong with her and why can't she scrutinize it and how could it possibly be a 19? I can't, I'm a psychologist. I can't get a 19. And then I ran out of bullets and I said, Joanne, remind me again, what is this trait measuring? She looks me in the eye and she says, if you just play back everything you just said to me for the last 10 minutes, that's a great example of low resilience. And I was like, oh my God, now I can't wriggle out of this. I see exactly what you're saying. And I weakly mumbled something like, oh, that's what you mean by low resilience. Now I get it. So that that really made an impact on me. I walked away from that feedback feeling like I had discovered a part of myself that was missing. And I vowed to do something about it. I looked up the research, and luckily, there were some studies, mainly coming out of University of Pennsylvania, showing that resilience is teachable, that there are things that you can do to raise resilience. And part of it is building a strong social support system, which I had, but I wasn't really making use of it for that. And I, so I vowed to do that. But the most important intervention is changing your thinking, because there's a thing called the cognitive model, which basically says how we think dictates how we feel. Our thoughts precipitate emotions. And if we change our thoughts, we change our emotions. And each self-criticism that comes out of a low resilience reaction is a learned 
thought pattern. It's not obligatory. It's something we learned. And if we learned it, we can change it. So the first step is learning what is the thought pattern running through the jukebox of my mind. Make that conscious. Then try substituting some other thought that still serves the same protective function, but isn't dysfunctional itself, isn't hurtful. So instead of saying something catastrophizing, oh my God, I failed this test, I'm never going to graduate, maybe you can say, huh, I failed this test, that gives me some useful feedback where, about where I need to study harder next time. You and I have talked in our prep sessions about looking at resilience from two different levels. One you call upstream, and the other term you use is downstream. And I so know- here's the way I think of it. I think of Desmond Tutu's famous quote that if someone's fishing babies out of the river, we can keep pulling them out of the river, or we can go upstream and figure out who's dumping them into the river. In other words, upstream connotes the idea of going to the source of the problem and trying to eliminate the source instead of repairing the problem at the point at which its symptoms show up. Think of lawyer well-being as having an upstream, midstream, and downstream intervention point. The downstream intervention point would be things like lawyer assistance programs. They originally started to deal with alcoholism and then drug abuse, but later expanded to deal with loneliness and suicide and family problems and all kinds of other lawyer dysfunctional behavior to get lawyers help. That's after somebody's already been under stress, has already had consequences of that stress, has already tried to cover up that stress with some sort of narcotizing event, drinking or drugs, or has suffered a divorce, or when they're really hurting already from this long history of problems, then we see the downstream solutions. Those are terrific, essential, needed interventions. But if all we do is intervene downstream and never attack the root cause that's sending people downstream, we'll never solve the problem. We're just going to need lots and lots of helpers at the bottom end of the stream to cope with the dysfunctional behavior. What can we do to ward off the behavior in the first place? What can we do to go upstream to find why are lawyers so unhappy? What is it that makes lawyers unhappy? And in my book, I've actually got a whole chapter about the history of lawyer unhappiness that started with overwork in the 1980s and then moved on to some of the more complex issues about work, including lawyer personality and some of the things that we've talked about today. And now, if you look upstream, the first thing we look at is what culture does your law firm have? What are the norms? What is it? Was it okay to have sharp elbows in your firm? Or do we have a culture of being nice to everybody? Is it okay to take time off for yourself to recharge your batteries? Or do we have a workaholic culture? What are the norms that we have in place, whether they're intentional or they've just evolved? And do they facilitate the healthiest outcome for our lawyers or not? And if we can intervene at the level of culture, if we can consciously create the kind of cultures that both produce high quality law and serve our clients well, and at the same time produce ongoing healthy lawyers, thriving lawyers. I believe that can be done, but I believe it has to be done at a systemic level 
by leaders looking at the entire system and not by focusing on individuals and not by focusing on the end product when people are already suffering, but by getting to them before they start experiencing symptoms of stress. So that's upstream. Midstream interventions are things that we're not aiming at people who are experiencing a pathology yet. They're healthy lawyers, but they're under stress. What can we do to soften that, to mitigate it, to alleviate some stress? And those would be things like yoga retreats, chair massage, concierge services to do your laundry, things that we do to take the burden off of lawyers so that they have less stress or more relaxation that interrupts the stress cycle. And again, those are helpful interventions. Those midstream interventions are helpful too. There's nothing wrong with them. But if you only do midstream and downstream and you don't attack the root cause, you're going to have a need for a lot of chair massages. What has been your experience when you have a firm as a client and you find that the culture doesn't support that type of wellness in terms of helping the firm change or adapt the culture, be a healthier place to work and live? Because that seems like it's a tall order, especially given the, the challenges of, of managing lawyers and, and just the sort of glacial pace of change in the way firms are sometimes structured. What's been your experience coming into those situations and helping them change the culture? First of all, I only help a firm change when the firm wants to change. I can't have more interest and passion about them being a better firm than they do. They have to want that. And if there's resistance, I look for the point of least resistance. Maybe that's coaching an individual. If that's if that works, whatever is going to help that particular firm solve its immediate problem, that's a good place to start. We always want to start with success. Sometimes success looks like working with one individual at a time. Sometimes it looks like helping a small group, a practice group, or a small group within an office or a floor. Sometimes it is a whole firm intervention. Uh, it really depends on where's the point of least resistance and most, most commitment to a solution. Let's look, let's work with that point of entry, have success there, and then you can always build and expand success. If your success is with an individual, after a while, people start saying, what happened to so-and-so? How can I get some of that? And it starts spreading to other people. When you have success at a, at a superordinate level, at an institutional level, that starts cascading, but not everybody benefits immediately. And eventually you start going bottom up as well as top down and you meet in the middle. There's no one right way to help a firm, but the general rule is I'm not going to push against resistance. I'm going to look for the path of least resistance where somebody genuinely wants help and try to have success there. And then if there's an interest, it's not for me, it's for them to be motivated. If they're motivated to take that success experience and to capitalize on it, to expand it, I'm ready and willing to help them. So it could be a it could be a one convert at a time start, or there could be a circumstance where like an entire practice group is committed to trying to change. But the point is you, you have to design your strategy around 
where you're going to find entries to make progress. That's right. We talked a little bit in our call last week, I think, about what it means to have an optimum environment to work. And, and how do you define it? Basically, there are a couple of criteria that I look at. Not every firm may uh, hold the same views, but number one, is the environment that I work in something that brings out the best in me? The best workplaces in the world have a conscious philosophy of bringing out the best in their people. And there's a lot of science around this. Kim Cameron at University of Michigan, Dan Cable at the London Business School, and a bunch of other researchers have shown that the most profitable, successful, and enjoyable workplaces, they all share those characteristics, are the ones that consciously have a philosophy of bringing out the best in their people. And they do that at every point from the onboarding process all the way up to the leadership development process. So bringing out the best is one of the hallmarks of a healthy organizational culture. There are a lot of components to what makes an organization healthy, but there are certain components that are more impactful than others. So bringing out the best is one of them. Uh, psychological safety is another one. Amy Edmondson at Harvard has shown over the last 30 years uh, the, the vital importance of the culture, the climate of psychological safety. By psychological safety, what she's talking about is I can be myself, I can express myself, I can take a point of view that's unconventional or unpopular and not worry that I will be ridiculed, sidelined, punished, criticized, humiliated. Psychological safety means it's a safe place for me to be an outlier. And that's quite rare in organizations. But when you have a culture that is psychologically safe, again, it dovetails with bringing out the best in people. Because how can we bring out your best when you fear being your best, when you fear being unique? The more threat people experience in an organization, the more we have to conform and act the way we think we're supposed to be instead of the way we truly are. Permission to be your true self, the permission to capitalize on the diversity of our workplaces gives us the maximum opportunity to have high productivity and profitability. Workplace diversity produces high profitability and productivity. There's a good amount of research on that as well. Those are some of the components that matter in the research and which I myself subscribe to. When you create those workplaces, make no mistake about it, it does yield better business outcomes, yields longer retention, yields better collaboration. It's not as if money spent developing those workplaces doesn't ultimately inure to the overall health financially as well as emotionally of the organization. Oh, absolutely. I was just putting together a program. I'm going to be doing a presentation in March at the Pro Bono Institute. One of the things I am going to be talking to them about is the idea that when people do pro bono work, it is very positive in its impact on the individual that's doing the work, on the other colleagues in the firm and on the recipients of their largesse. It tends to go along with a whole bunch of improvements in the law firm that we see all linked together. So there's kind of one-stop shopping is the way I think of it. 
if you improve any one of these things, you improve all the other things. And, and by things, I'm talking about the outcomes. When you do pro bono, or when you create psychological safety, or when you build resilience, or a long list of other things, the payoffs that you get, there's a whole list. They all seem to come together. So you get higher profitability. You get higher productivity. You get increased retention. People stay longer. You get less absenteeism. People are healthier and stay and have fewer days off from illness. You get people reporting better being. They're more motivated and engaged. They collaborate better. They work better in teams. They're better leaders and they're better followers. They tend to be more inclusive automatically. You don't have to train them in inclusivity. People are naturally psychologically more inclusive when they're feeling more positive emotions. And they bring out their own best and the best in other people. So best all of these things effects. go to, yeah, it's all kinds of uh, the, the best kinds of ripple effects. And you can trigger that cascade of all of these related good outcomes through many different types of interventions Building psychological safety and building resilience are just but two of them, but there are many more. I can't thank you enough for being a guest. Your work is groundbreaking, and it's so important in terms of giving insight on the traits of the people in our profession, but also on how to fashion strategies for a happier, healthier profession. Can you tell our listeners how they might find you or where they might find you? Just go to my website at lawyerbrain.com. And there is contact info and a uh, contact form on the website. And on that website is a list of our services, the examples of interventions and projects that we've done, some articles you can download for free, a blog with lots of information, lots of good stuff on there, all for free. This has been episode number three of Erasing the Stigma, Conversations About Mental Health in the Legal Community. Thank you, Mark. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Erasing the Stigma, Conversations About Mental Health in the Legal Community. This podcast has been brought to you by Mark Yakino Untethered. You can reach me at myakano25 at gmail. You can also reach me on Instagram at myakano25. And I hope you enjoyed this podcast and the stories we have to tell and share both now and in the coming months.